Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Now, we all know the story about Moses and the burning bush, right? That when God called Moses to go back to Egypt to free his people from slavery, that he spoke to Moses from a burning bush. Moses saw a burning bush and heard God speak. But what we don't know, because, well, maybe because it's not in the movie, is that there was an angel in the burning bush as well. That's right. The burning bush, God speaking, and an angel of the Lord. Surprised? Well, what does it all mean? We're going to talk about that in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. So we're in uh, Acts chapter 7. We're just blowing through it. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of jumping and skipping over so much. But, uh, but there's a lot going on here. And um, Stephen has started this defense of uh, his arrest and the accusations being made against him by this kind of quick history of the history of the Jewish people, starting with... Abraham, and then he moved forward from Abraham to uh, Joseph, and then we, last week, transitioned from Joseph to Moses, and that's where we are today in his, what he's doing is he's bringing bringing this uh, argument to a conclusion, uh, and he's going to kind of, he's going to, Although he goes on to David eventually and so forth, Joshua and that kind of thing. Uh, One of his big focuses is on Moses, because if you remember, one of the things he's accused of is blaspheming Moses. And uh, these Sadducees are all about Moses. And so what he wants to do is to show, hey, I'm not, I'm I'm a fan of Moses. I'm all, I'm all about Moses. I'm not blaspheming Moses. I respect Moses. And so part of what he's doing here, and one of the reasons Moses is such an uh, important part of his defense, is that it's, it's the way he's defending himself against the accusation of being a blasphemer of Moses by saying, I'm, I, I have no problem 
with Moses, like uh, as one of the fathers of our faith, as it were. So let's go ahead and look and see what he's saying here. Uh, I'm going to start on verse 23. Uh, no, start at verse 20, chapter 7. It says, at that, this is Stephen speaking. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. We talked about last week. Moses was beautiful. Did you ever think about Moses being beautiful? I mean, I mean, strikingly beautiful. That's that's the intention there of what Stephen is saying. Uh, for three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, because Pharaoh said all male children had to be killed, uh, but you know his family put him outside. We talked about that last week from Exodus. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And we talked about how, you know, uh, Mo, uh, Pharaoh's daughter was all in on having Moses be her adopted son. But we really think probably by the way Pharaoh acted later on in the story that Pharaoh was never, never bought into this because he had instructed that all Israelite children be killed, men be killed, or babies, boys, baby boys be killed. And here his own daughter brings home an Hebrew baby boy, and they knew it from the very moment that it happened. So he he never really bought into that. He was looking for the first opportunity to get rid of Moses, and he eventually got his chance to do that. So uh, it says, verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided, and, and the idea here is he had it in his heart. It was in his heart and his spirit to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. If he killed the uh, Hebrew, uh, the Israelite, he'd have had no problem. After all, it's just a slave. Their lives meant nothing. Uh, but his problem was that he killed the Egyptian. That's the, the problem. Uh, verse 25, Moses thought that his own people, so he knew he was not an Egyptian, he knew he was an Israelite, that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. And the idea there in the word rescue, the other way you could translate that is to save them, that he was going to be used to save them. So he knew that he was called to be an instrument through whom God would rescue his people and free them from slavery in Egypt from even this very first moment at 40 years old when he when he did what he did. So, but, but they did not, it says. Uh, verse 26, the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed uh, Moses aside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? We talked about last week, there are four questions that are brought up by what we're reading here. And the fourth and last question, which we did not answer last week, the other three we did answer, but the fourth question we did not answer was this question. The question they asked him, who made Moses a ruler and a judge over the Israelites? Verse 28, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses thought he got a, he, he thought, he did this in secret. He thought no one saw him. He thought he got away with the perfect crime. You ever watch Columbo? <laughs> There's no perfect crime, right? 
someone is watching. Someone will find out. You never know. Uh, and 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 Columbo always got his man. And and so Moses, thinking he got away with something, surprise, you didn't get away with it, Moses. People, someone saw. So it says, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he panicked. And he fled to Midian. Why? Because he knew Pharaoh's out to get him. And he knew now that he had given Pharaoh the, the reason and the opportunity to come and get him. So he fled to Midian, which is in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. We, I think we talked about that a little bit last week. Verse 30. After 40 years had passed in that desert area, in that wilderness, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Now, when you th- hear about Moses and the burning bush, did you realize that there was an angel involved in that? Probably not, because it's not in the movie. You know, <laughs> with Charlton Heston... There was no angel. It was just the burning bush and God speaking. But there was an angel. We're going to look at that more closely in a few minutes. So uh, when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. I mean, can you blame him? Well, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. We're going to explore that. That's one of the things we're going to look at closely here. The answer to that question is perhaps. I, I, yes, some people believe that, but other people believe something else. And you can't say either, either idea is wrong. So anyway, that's the best kind of question. There's no wrong answer. I always like it when someone says, there's no wrong answer. I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm good then. So anyway, uh, verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, "Take off your sandals and play. And the, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen." And in the original <coughs> Greek, it says here, "I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt." In the original Greek, it, it is, it, it, it's, uh, it's literally translated, seeing. I saw, and I, really, I like the poetry of that. It's like here God is saying, uh, he says, seeing I saw what was going on in, seeing I saw the oppression of my people. In, in other words, what he's saying is, I saw it and I understood it. So he says, I indeed, I have indeed seen. It's not just the idea of seeing it, because you can you can see things like I see commercials on TV all the time, but I don't know what they're talking about. You know, like I'm just I'm just kind of blanking out. The commercial comes on and I check out. And the commercial's over, I check back in. I saw it, but I didn't understand it. And so what God is saying here is seeing I saw. I saw it and I understood what was going on, what was happening to them. I felt like that indeed almost goes back to Moses 
thought God was using him to rescue, but they didn't understand that. And God's saying, I I did see it, and I, I'm agreeing with you. You are going to be. Yes, rescued. well, that could be yeah. true, too. To, to kind of yeah. uh, bolster his thought of, I thought I was going to be used by God. Yeah. He said, I have indeed seen it. I, I, I saw you, and seeing you, I understood you and what's going on. But the idea is that God saw it and God understood and, and, and you know, bought in and knew and understood about the impression of his people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. I think all along here, you know, Moses is saying, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God, I agree with you. I've heard the groaning. Okay, God, I've come down to set them free. All right, God, all right, go get them. And then he says, I'm going to send you back to your Moses. Whoa, 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 let's slow down that horse. <laughs> let's just, let's take a time out here, God. Uh, uh, I mean, I thought you were going to do it. And, uh, the, and to bring up what Cheryl just said, isn't it interesting, the change in Moses after these 40 years in the desert? Because the Egyptian Moses... 40 years earlier said, okay, I got this. I know God has called me this. I'm ready to go do it. I'm going to make it happen. It says Moses thought, he, he knew, he thought, and he was going to take action and make it happen. And you can't make God do things for you. You know, you can't. You have to wait on God to get you ready and to open that door. But now, 40 years later, as we'll see in, in, a, in a few minutes, too, now Moses says, I am not the guy for this. And that was a necessary step. That was a necessary change that God had to bring into Moses' life because the Moses who was so self-assured and going to do it all himself and going to do it without God's help, really, because he was, he was capable. He, felt, he said what? He was, remember what it said there? Look at what it said. It said that of the Egyptians, he was powerful in speech and action. He thought, I got this, God. But now, 40 years later in the, in, in the wilderness, he's saying, I ain't got this, God. And he had to have that change of heart that it was going to be God who did it and not him. And it was a problem he even had in the wilderness in the 40 years after they left Egypt. It was still a problem because God said, speak to the rock and I'll bring out water. And what did Moses say? He said, I'm going to strike the rock. And he kind of took some of that glory to, that was to be to God and kind of brought some of it on himself. And so God said, guess what? You're not going into the promised land because you're still dealing. I'm still dealing with this human nature, uh, Moses, that you have. But the important part, part here is that he had changed significantly. He was, a, a, he was in a place in Egypt where God wanted to use him but couldn't. And now 40 years later, he's in a place where God wants to use him and can. And that's an important transition in his life. So now I want to go and let's look at this whole thing that we're talking about here more closely. So let's go to Exodus uh, chapter 3. And this is where we're going to jump off a little bit. And this is where we're going to talk a little bit more about what um, Stan was asking. Uh, by the way, uh, I should say, I liked, as I was studying Moses' conversion, from Egypt uh, to the, the wilderness, uh, 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 Moses, uh, J. Vernon McGee had this great description. He said that God gave 
uh, Moses a BD degree. A BD degree. What's a BD degree? He says it's a back of the desert degree. <laughs> a BD degree, a back of the desert degree. Something happened to him because if he was, if he was mighty in his words and deeds as a young man, and then as an older man, he, he had some kind of a stutter or some kind of speech defect, and he doesn't even think he can talk about it. Something traumatic happened. To him. Well, the question is, was that a true and real thing, or was that just an excuse that he was trying to use to get out of it? You know, so that can happen sometimes too. So, okay, so here we are, chapter three of um, of Exodus, and. It starts and it says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai. This is another name for Mount Sinai. The mountain of God. So, There are two things in this first verse that we notice. One is Moses has now been out in the wilderness and the desert for 40 years. And God has used that 40 years to get the Egypt out of him. But it was necessary because the Egyptian Moses had no idea what it was like to live in the desert, what it was like to be in the wilderness. Mike, you're, you're a camper outer, right? If you have never done it before, that's one thing. But if you've done it many times, like you have, I believe, it's a different matter, right? I mean, now when you go camping, you're probably very comfortable with that, I'm assuming. Yeah, you kind of know what you need to take and how you need to make a fight. In other when you go, you go prepared. You kind of know what you need. But when, you, when you're a city guy and you do that, you're, you, have, you know nothing because you've never been out in the woods. You've never been camping. You've never had that experience. So the Moses of Egypt didn't know how to live in the desert. And he was going to have to live in the desert for 40 years after they left Egypt. He was about to lead his people through the desert, through the wilderness. God had to make it possible for him to know how to do that. And so he spends 40 years getting uh, Moses ready to live in the desert and in the wilderness because up until that point, he had no idea. He had been living in the lap of luxury in Egypt, in the palace of Pharaoh. He had the first idea of how to live in the desert. But you spend 40 years out there and you, you learn. So that's one thing. Another thing is he became a shepherd. It says he was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. So this was probably his job. For 40 years in the desert, his father-in-law Jethro was, a, uh, was you know, one of the leaders of the clan out there. He always had a lot of livestock, including probably a lot of sheep. And so he says to Moses, Moses, I need you to be a shepherd. What is it about being a shepherd that trains you and teaches you to be a shepherd of people? 
<laughs> Sheep aren't all that smart. <laughs> they need a lot of help. Sheep have no natural defense. They're not, they don't have big teeth. They're not fast. They don't have claws. They're only safe because the shepherd keeps them safe. And as with Moses, as with David, uh, God wanted Moses to learn the techniques and the skills of being a shepherd of sheep because it was going to help him be a shepherd of his people eventually. He could take a lot of the things he learned as a shepherd of sheep to be a shepherd to people. David was the same way. David even said, hey, I learned so many things as a shepherd. I know how to lead people. One of the reasons he wasn't afraid of Goliath is because he had killed predators with his bare hands, basically, to protect his sheep. And also sheep, you know, they'll like totally eat up all the grass in an area and they'll just, if, if a shepherd doesn't move them, they'll just die of starvation because they eat up all the, and they don't know to move somewhere else. A shepherd has to lead them to a new place that's safe and that kind of thing. But there's another thing that is subtle that I think God needed to show Moses because the Israelites at this point were slaves. They were slaves. They were not shepherding people. But they came from shepherding people. But the Egyptians, let's look at verse, go back to Genesis for a minute. Chapter 46, Genesis 46, and uh, let's go to verse 31, uh, Genesis 46, 31, it says, then Joseph, this is back in the time of Joseph in Egypt, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians." All shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So Moses has been raised as an Egyptian. In the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian society, he doesn't see his people. He loves them. He has a heart for them. But he only knows them as slaves. He doesn't know them as shepherds. Although they are shepherds. They have, they have descended from shepherds. But I think, you know, in the poetry of God, that here is Moses, who has been raised to see shepherds as detestable. You couldn't even, as an Egyptian, you couldn't eat with a, a, a shepherd. They were detestable to you. And I think in the poetry of God, uh, God says to Moses, you can't think about shepherds like that. Because my people have descended, my people are shepherds. They, 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 they start, they, they've descended as shepherds. They're slaves now, but they have been shepherds. And I need to get this Egypt out of you that's, that, that has the perception that shepherds are detestable. No, guess what? In the poetry of God, I'm going to make you a shepherd. And shepherds got to see Jesus when he was 
For, yeah, exactly. Oh, shepherds are good, you know, in the eyes of God. Shepherds are great. But in the eyes of the world, shepherds are not. In the eyes of Jesus, I mean, in the eyes of Pharaoh and Egypt, shepherds were detestable. And, and so God not only put him in the, in, the, in the wilderness to get the Egypt out of him in terms of learning how to live in the desert, but he made him a shepherd, not just to be able to learn how to shepherd people, but also to get this idea out of him that shepherds are detestable. Shepherds are honorable, hardworking, wonderful people that learn a lot and take care of a flock that's important. And this is an important job. And so I just love the poetry of God that he took uh, Moses, who coming out of Egypt probably saw shepherding as a detestable thing to do, an awful uh, uh, you know, way to make a living, and now for 40 years, that's what he does. And so now he comes back to his people, seeing them a little bit differently. Yeah, they're, they're slaves, but they descended from a people that were shepherds, and, and he needs to love shepherds, because he has become a shepherd. Then I come back to my original statement. What maybe has happened in this time is, is that his esteem has been greatly. He, he, his pride has, his, he doesn't have, what am I trying to say? But when he lived in the palace and all that, he was quite good. Yeah. Now he's much smaller. In, in much more humble. Much more humble. Much more humble, right. But, but let's back up. Let's rewind just a minute. You know, when he first came out to Midian, guess who he had a problem with right off the bat? Shepherds. Look at, uh, you're at verse 3, uh, or chapter 3 of Exodus. Just back up a few verses to chapter 2. And let's go to verse 15 of chapter 2 in Exodus. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian. They looked at him and said, He's an Egyptian. Uh, so he still has this Egypt. This is when we first got out there. He still had this Egypt in him. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered our flock. So he, he comes out of Egypt, feeling the shepherds are detestable. He gets out to Midian. The first thing he does is he has to get rid of the shepherds who are creating a problem for these women. And he has no problem with that because he says they're shepherds, you know. But now 40 years later, guess what? He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. So this is an important first verse here because it tells us a lot about what God is doing. He's preparing, he's giving what Javier McGee said, the BD degree, the back of the desert degree, to learn how to live in the desert, how to shepherd people, and to appreciate shepherding as an honorable profession. Okay, so uh, let's move on then in um, verse 2. There, the angel of the Lord, here we go, this is what we're going to talk about today at the burning bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. This is so often overlooked, right, in the story of Moses. We have the burning bush and Moses. The burning bush and Moses. God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. We never talk about the angel. There was an angel involved in all of this. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire 
from within a bush. Now, have we ever seen an angel in flames of fire elsewhere in the Bible? Is that the end Jesus? Right, yes. Exactly. Okay, let's go to that. Daniel, if you can find Daniel. Daniel's not easy to find. Look at, if you can get to Daniel, chapter 3. Keep your finger on Exodus 3. Let's move over to Daniel 3. And verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He, now he's, he used to like him, now he don't like him. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers and took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, he's a pagan. He doesn't have understand God really at this point. Uh, but he, he says, there's something supernatural about this guy. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, and governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. So here we have the same phraseology, basically, an angel there and an angel here. And in both cases, although the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was a consuming fire because it did kill the, uh, the soldiers who, who put them in there, so it was an actual real burning fire, and yet for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and this angel of the Lord, it was not a consuming fire because it did not burn them or kill. They came out, they didn't even smell like they'd been in, in the smell of smoke or fire or anything. So it was not a consuming fire for them. But this angel of the Lord was there with them in these flames of non-consuming fire. And this angel of the Lord is here also in the burning bush, which he says appeared as flames of fire. Uh, in this case, in the burning bush, it was a non-consuming fire. It didn't burn up the bush, but it looked like a fire. And there again in this fire is the angel of the Lord. And yes, you're right, Cheryl. This is not just an angel. This, in both cases, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's case, and in this case, virtually everybody believes that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. 
that this was Jesus in both cases that was physically there uh, and part of it, and, and, and that this is the appearance of Christ before he came to earth. So in that, so so think about that. There's Moses. He's out doing his thing, and all of a sudden, he something gets his attention, and it's an angel of the Lord who's appearing to him. Now, so somehow he had to look and see this angel, and then he sees the fire, and he goes, "I got to go check this out." But it, 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 if you read this the way it's intended, that Moses intended. He, what he's saying there is, yes, I saw the flame, the burning bush, but what got my attention was the angel. What got my attention was what he didn't know then, we know now. What got his attention was, was Christ. That's what got his attention and brought him to God. And that's kind of a neat symbol, right, that Jesus brings us to God, the <laughs> same kind of thing. So Jesus brought Moses to God, if you want to look at it that way appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Is there any place else in scripture where we've seen something that looked like flames of fire that did not burn up, that looked like fire but wasn't fire, it was a non-consuming fire? Yes, exactly. Ding, 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 ding. Bonus, bonus, bonus. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger in Exodus. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that appeared and came to rest on each of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what did those what did those sparks of flame, tongues of flame, that looked like fire but wasn't fire, was a non-consuming fire, what did that represent in the Pentecost story? The Holy Spirit, right. That non-consuming fire was a, was a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit which then indwelt the believers, right? Came to rest over the heads of all of them, and then it disappeared and they were filled. So that was representative of the Holy Spirit. So I think that this flame, which was a non-consuming fire, that wasn't real fire, but looked like fire, is representing to tell us that the Holy Spirit was also present at the burning bush. So you have the angel of the Lord Jesus and the burning of the bush that's not burning, but it looks like flame, but is non-consuming, that that is the Holy Spirit. So you have the angel of the Lord, you have Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit there. Let's go on. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So this is the question that Stan asked. Who was talking to Moses here? Was it 
the angel of the Lord? Was it Jesus speaking to Moses? Or was it God the Father speaking to Moses? Well, we know it's one and the same, but they do have three separate presences, right? So, yes, you talk to Jesus, you talk to God, but also there are three in one, one in three, but they are separate. So, I mean, one hint is perhaps if you want to go with this was Jesus, it says in verse two that from within the bush that the angel of the Lord appeared to him from within the bush. And then it says in verse four, God called to him from within the bush. So if you want to believe that it was Jesus within the bush, who it was, and that it was Jesus who spoke to him, no one's going to argue with that. It's very possible that's what happened. However, I don't think so. I think myself is that this was God the Father speaking to him. Why do I think that? Well, look at the very end of verse uh, verse 6. It says, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So he saw the angel, which drew his attention, so he could apparently look at the angel, which we can look at Jesus, and he could look at the Holy Spirit, and, and the represented by the flame, by the fire, that when God spoke, he couldn't look. He couldn't look at God, God's present face, presence face to face. He had to look away. And I think I like it too because I think if you look at Jesus bringing him over, the Holy Spirit represented his presence there by the flame, and God the Father speaking to Moses to say, you know, take off your sandals, I'm the God of your father, so on and so forth, and I want to send you to go back to Egypt, that here in the burning bush, interaction with Moses, you have the Trinity. You have God the Father speaking. You have God the Son and the angel bringing him, looking like an angel, bringing him over. And you have the Holy Spirit in the the presence shown by by the flame. So here you have the Trinity in the Old Testament in Exodus. Yeah. I, I had a problem still because you really got four things. Why is there a bush? Well, I don't know about it. I guess that I have no idea. They were, the bush was the bush. But it didn't burn up the bush. I know, but why didn't so, people just show up? Why, why a bush? We're going to have to ask God. To, when we get to heaven, we're going to say, God, why, why was there a bush? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea why there was a bush. But. Okay, if you want me to be really uh, poetic here, I'm going to say that if you remember, it hadn't happened yet. But eventually, the Israelites would use a hyssop branch, part of a bush, to paint the blood of the lamb around their doorpost at Passover. So perhaps this is God kind of symbolically saying that, you know, that this bush, it doesn't say it's a hyssop bush, but that, you know, in the future, this this plant will be important and it will be used to, to during Passover, to put the uh, blood around the poetic door. So that's, yeah, pro, exactly, poetic foreshadowing. You were, I know you're, you were an English major. I heard you say once before, so you think like an English major, I can tell. Uh, sp- speaking of which, I think I may have said this before about Passover, and uh, the Passover lamb. Uh, we know that uh, 
they were called to put the blood of the lamb over the door and on the sides of the door uh, so that the angel would pass over their homes. But what, you, what we don't often understand is that right the way those homes were made is right in front of the door, there was a little trough usually that would catch rain. And so the rain wouldn't get in. I think I told you before, Jan and I had that done at our house or across our driveway because when it rained, the water would get into our garage. And we had a, a, a trench built, basically. Uh, and now the rain goes in there and doesn't come into our garage. So when they sacrificed the lamb outside of their door, that the blood of that lamb would have probably drained into that trough. So the blood completely shut them in, top, bottom, and side. They were completely, uh, you know, protected by the blood of the lamb around their, the whole door, front, and, or top and bottom and side. So that's, that's just an aside. So, but I think, but, I, but, but, you know, people who say, you know, this was Jesus speaking, you know, we can't really say that's wrong because the way it's written, you can interpret it either way. I happen to like the idea of, of seeing the Trinity, because this, this was a turning point, right? God is using Moses to free his people after 400 years in Egypt, and don't forget that he's also fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham, that this is going to happen. He, 200 years or 300 years before it happened, this is going to happen. Now it has happened, and so God is also not only sending Moses back to free his people out of Egypt, but he's doing it also to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, you know, hundreds of years before this. So this is such an important moment. It's such an important moment to give Moses his marching orders that I like the idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all being there to to call Moses to go do that and to give him his marching orders. So, okay, so let's go back then and let's see where we go from here. And actually... Yes. So would you, Absolutely. Would you go so far as to say then that this is an anointing of the Holy Spirit on Moses as he goes forward in his ministry that God's calling him to You know, we don't, it doesn't say that specifically. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I wouldn't want to go that far because I think, you know, that would have been said. But I think there'd be no doubt that. The Holy Spirit was involved in what happened, you know, that he was serving God in that way through 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 God's presence in every way. But but I do think that uh, the Holy Spirit was was part of this encounter, you know. So, OK, so let's go back here. We only have a few minutes. I just want to finish off the, the as much, a little bit more of the Moses thing. Let's go back to verse uh, 35. Acts, Acts chapter seven. Sorry. You guys aren't keeping up with my <laughs> back and forth. Okay, Acts chapter 7, verse 35. This is the same Moses. It says, now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? This is, I wanted to get this because this answers our fourth question. Who, who made you a ruler and a judge? And Stephen says, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Who sent him? God sent him. Through the, now here's through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So if you want to say the angel is the one talking, you can have more ammunition for that here. And that Stephen says that by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, I think he's talking about two different things. I think he's talking about 
uh, he was taught, he was spoken to by God, and the angel brought him over. I think it's still two separate things there. But either way, you can go with it however you feel most comfortable. So, but the answer to that question is, when when those people asked him in verse 28, "Who made you a ruler and a judge over us?" I mean, he wasn't prepared at that time, but he could have said, "God." You know, God is the one who made me a ruler and a judge over you. Okay, so let's go a little bit long, farther. Uh, verse 36. Moses led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. I'm going to jump off there, but one thing I want to point out, go back just really quickly to Acts 3, Acts 3 verse 22. Acts 3, verse 22. This is Peter preaching. Verse 22 of Acts 3. For Mo- uh, Peter says, when he's preaching, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. So Peter is talking about Jesus here. And he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. What does Stephen say? God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. So my question is, do you think that when Peter was preaching, that Stephen was there hearing it? Do you think when Peter was preaching, was Stephen there in the crowd listening to what Peter was saying? I think very likely because he's using the exact same reference of who who is Jesus. Jesus is this prophet that Moses talked about. And where did he hear that? He heard it when Peter preached it. Because at some point, Stephen became a believer. Stephen wasn't an apostle. He wasn't among the first 120. But at some point, Stephen came to believe. I think Stephen came to believe through the preaching of Peter. And I think this is an example of how we can kind of connect those dots because Stephen is using the same analogy, the same reference that Peter used earlier. And I think Stephen heard Peter preach. And when it came for him to make his defense, he said, ah, Peter used this. I'm going to use it too, because it was right when Peter said it, and it's still right now. And this is a good point that we need to make, that Moses, when Moses was called and Moses made this prophecy, Moses was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And when Moses said, this is a prophet like me, he was talking about the Messiah will come. And I think this is a good uh, a good example of how when you're preaching and teaching, you never know where it's going to end up because God says, my word never comes back void, right? Anytime you send out your word, you may not see it, even in your lifetime, Moses didn't see it, but Moses knew that this was going to happen. And you don't know, you know, when David preaches, he never knows who's going to hear that, how someone might take that to do amazing things for God. Uh, so keep talking about God, keep witnessing for him. Even if you think it's falling on dead, dried ground, you don't know because... 
it can have long-term effects. You don't. I'm sure when Peter was preaching that he didn't know Stephen was there and who Stephen was going to be and what Stephen was going to accomplish, and yet it did. So my encouragement to all of us is let's not give up on talking about God, no matter what it's. If it seems like it's not bringing back any fruit, it's not up to us to make the fruit. It's up to us to just plant the seed. So. So that's where we'll stop for today. We'll pick up next week there. So, Amen. When you think as Israelites, they, or as, I mean, Jewish people, they finally saw the connection between Moses and Jesus? No. I still don't think. I mean, right before, well, during Jesus' time, all the boys were killed too, right? Yes. So just like Moses. I think we look at it as Christians. Yeah, if you look at Moses and Jesus, there are a lot of similarities. Um, And we look at it as Christians and say, how can you not see that? You know? But we'll talk about next week these people that came out of Egypt with Moses, he goes up on the mountain for 40 days, and they're already in their hearts going back to Egypt and making a golden calf. And you're saying, how's that even possible? How's that even possible? You, 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 can't, you, you walked through the Red Sea, didn't you? You, you, got, you got manna from heaven for 40, day, 40 years. Uh, you, you got water from a rock. You got quails. You got the Passover. You got frogs. You got the frog thing always gets. You got frogs. You got blood in the water. And yet he's gone for 40 days and you're already saying, you know, Egypt was so nice. So how can you miss it? I don't know. I don't know. As a Christian, I don't understand it, but it's just Satan, it's human nature, and it's just hard for us to get over that hump, you know? So. Okay, guys, thank you. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.